Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Okay, having gotten the, uh, the, the rules out of the way, I want uh, to introduce our final speaker of the afternoon, uh, Dr. Ann Bradley. Anne is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies. She served as Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, where she developed a, and commissioned research towards a systematic biblical theology of economic freedom. She is a visiting professor at Georgetown University and has previously taught at George Mason and at Charles University in Prague. She is currently a visiting scholar at the Bernard Center for Women, Politics, and Public Policy, and she served as the Associate Director for the Program in Economics, Politics, and the Law at the James M. Buchanan Center at George Mason University. Her academic work focuses on the political economy of terrorism, with specific emphasis on the industrial organization of Al-Qaeda. Her academic research has been published in scholarly journals and edited volumes, and she is currently working on a book that analyzes the political economy of Al-Qaeda post 9-11. Uh, she also worked in the past as an economic analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Terrorism Analysis. Please help me welcome Ann Bradley. I think we're already having some technical difficulties, so we're going to work on that. I, um, I want to talk about a few things in a very short period of time. So when I was first asked to, uh, well, when I was first given the opportunity to talk about terrorism and economics and economic freedom, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, as Dr. Marlowe mentioned, this has been part of my research for uh, quite some time now. Uh, and then um, Lindsay told me, you have 45 minutes or 40 minutes. But then she said, there's a lot of Q&A. And then Frank told me, well, you really need to wrap it up by two. So this is going to be some power speaking. And uh, there's a lot of things that I think as an economist that the economic way of thinking, which is what I talk about all the time in my class with my students, the economic way of thinking is a way to embrace the fundamental principles of economics and apply them to real world problems. And that's what we have to do. So when we think about terrorism, especially post 9-11, we have to, I think, bring economics to bear on the discussion. I think when we do not do that, we do so at our peril. We miss opportunities to make the world a better place and to really make inroads in this long, long fight against terrorism, which of course is not new, but I think has changed since 9-11. So really what I want to talk about is just how economics can help us get there. So to start, what I'll say, and this is what we kind of do in the classroom, is we talk about anthropological truths. You can't understand macroeconomics. You really can't understand kind of these big economic problems without understanding the truths about individuals. And I think that, unfortunately, this is missing in a lot of our mainstream economic courses across universities in the United States, not at IWP. So we start with that. And what are those truths? One is just human beings are self-interested, right? And we kind of 
kind of understand this. This is Economics 101. Adam Smith taught us this, so you can tell everybody I mentioned Adam Smith so I don't get fined, right? He's the father of modern economics. He is a scholar we need to think about. And this was his insight. So this can be a real problem for human cooperation and human coordination because if we're all running around and we're self-interested, by the way, this does not mean that we're never altruistic. It doesn't mean that we're never benevolent, but it does mean that we don't always act in that way. So as James Madison very famously said in the Federalist Papers, this is why we need government, right? But he also said that because humans are fallen and self-interested, that we need something to regulate the governors. So we have this very complex problem of political economy. I think when we talk about terrorism, we have to really start with those same assumptions, which is to say human beings are self-interested. They have a little bit of knowledge about a few things, right? And we can't flourish alone. It's impossible. We need each other. And so we need to think about the institutions in society that produce peaceful cooperation. And of course, if you look at the long story of human history, we have not been very good at this. It has only been in the recent past that we have experienced both more peaceful cooperation and income growth, which of course is something economists look at and think about a lot. So at the same time, when we look at those issues, we can say, well, we live in a world of terrorism, of terrorism that is rapidly spreading in certain parts of the world and remains, you know, not as much of a problem in other parts of the world. So what is driving that and what makes that occur? So I want to start a little bit, kind of go back a little bit, thinking about political economy to a book called Human Action written by Ludwig von Mises in the early part of the 20th century. He dedicates the first, it's like an 850 page book, so this is the very short summary, but basically at the beginning of this book he talks about the nature of human choice. That economics is always and everywhere about the study of how human beings make choices under conditions of uncertainty. And so this he calls the model of human action. Number one, we, oh, to make a choice, to go from a state of inaction to action, we have to experience some level of uneasiness. We're uneasy with our current state of affairs. Number two, we have a vision for a better outcome. We can imagine that we can relieve that uneasiness. It's not always permanent alleviation, right? So when I eat breakfast, I'm going to need to eat again. So it's a temporary alleviation of that uneasiness. And number three, which is very important for our policy scenarios, so this is where uh, you know we have to kind of take this approach as we think about who is committing these acts of terrorism, who is funding these acts of terrorism, is point number three which is we take conscious and purposeful steps to get there. What this means is that economists assume that people are rational. Now, we don't mean that people are hyper-rational, that we can always do perfect calculations of costs and benefits, but what we do assume about human behavior is that even the terrorists, even the dictators, they engage in this calculus of choice. They try to maximize their gain and minimize their costs. Why is that important? Well, it's important because, and hopefully after lunch, I want to give an optimistic take on kind of some of our framework for thinking about this into the future. It provides a ray of hope because what it means is that people respond to incentives. That is really important in the war on terror. 
People respond to incentives, which means, and this has motivated my research for 20 years now since I was a young graduate student and 9-11 happened actually. I woke up one morning and I was on my way to the Fairfax campus of George Mason University and turned on the news and didn't go to class that day, didn't go to class for a week. And really that motivated my thinking about what can economics and what can economists bring to bear on this issue. And I think we still need to do those things. But we're assuming that the terrorists respond to incentives. And what does that mean? If we can change the incentives that they face, we will get different behavioral outcomes. And that's important. We want to understand that. So what I you know, am here to also say is that economics certainly isn't everything. But I think it can add to this conversation. And I think it can add to effective policy. So here's another kind of weird idea which is that terrorism is an emergent order, which means it comes from the conditions that people find themselves in. So economists don't really believe in destiny, right? We don't believe that you know, some societies and countries are poor and they will always be poor. Of course, that was expounded even by economists through a lot of the 20th century. If you look at development economists you know, in the 30s and 40s, they basically said some countries are poor, they will always be poor, there is nothing they can do to escape poverty, and so all we can do is help them forever. And if you look at the last 100 years of economic growth, we know that's not true that societies and institutions within those societies can be fundamentally transformed in the direction of prosperity and democracy and peaceful institutions. But it's not easy and it's certainly not guaranteed. But terrorism is an emergent order. It is a response to the environment people find themselves in. So we have to think about changing that environment. The other thing I do in my research is think about terrorism along supply and demand curves. Also strange, right? It's not like the market for blue jeans, right? Um, you don't buy and sell exactly in that way. But what I try to get our students to think about generally, not just as it pertains to terrorism, but about all these types of behaviors that we can't easily, neatly put into categories like we would other markets, is to say, there's a demand for terrorism. There's a supply of terrorism. What economists assume about markets is that supply is always a response to demand. What does that make us think? Or what does, should it make us think? It should make us consider that really the demand for terrorism deserves a lot of our attention. Why do people choose this? Why do people fund this? Why do people observe this and say, I'm so happy this is happening? We want to understand that supply and demand. This is not to say that if we can eliminate the demand, we'll get terrorism to go to zero, because we've never lived in a world with zero terrorism. Right? But it does mean that we can have more productive, perhaps, policy responses that deal with the underlying symptoms that cause people to wake up in the morning and either donate to terrorism or become a terrorist or form a new terrorist organization or aid them, all these types of things. So another you know, kind of thing that I like to think about is there's these different arenas of society and they all matter for our daily lives. There's economic life, which occurs in the context of markets. There's uh, the state, which can govern our affairs either very productively or not so productively. And there's civil society. For a long time, economists didn't think of, uh, look at civil society or think that it was very important, but I think that's a mistake. And they're starting to do that more and look at the institutions or the rules of the game in which people find themselves living so we can again understand what impact can we have on more peaceful civil society. 
right? And so if you think about Tocqueville, he thought a lot about this, right? He thought a lot about a robust civil society and what that meant for peaceful cooperation and coordination of people who didn't go to the same church. They didn't have the same color skin. They weren't the same gender, right? So we look at early America and we actually see a lot of cooperation. What is the ethos of that type of society? So I'm not going to talk actually a lot about terrorism to this crowd because I have a limited amount of time and you know a lot. But there are certain things that as somebody who is writing academically in this space, I'm working on a new book with some co-authors as was mentioned and so part of, the worst part of being an academic is doing the literature review. You can imagine what that's like for this topic. 3,500 academic papers have been written on terrorism in one way, shape, or form since 9-11. That's a lot of reading. The good news is that's a lot of people thinking about it. That's a lot of people that are putting their theory to the test. And so one of the things that has come out of this research is that there's just not one cause of terrorism. It's not because of poverty. It's not because of inequality. It's not because of bad governance. All those things tend to be true. And if I have time, I'll show you a chart I made up later uh, that kind of correlates these things. But what we find, it's usually all those things together in one you know, kind of way, shape, or form that are motivating people to respond in this violent way. And terrorism certainly thrives in some countries and societies much more than it does in others. So again, that's something that we want to look at and understand. So again, my research has been primarily oriented around Al-Qaeda. 9-11, like I said, happened when I was in graduate school and I had the opportunity to write a paper with a professor and that kind of really changed the whole course of my academic career and what I think about. So um, you know about Al-Qaeda. Um, I don't have to talk too much about that and it certainly has changed a lot since 9-11. But when you think about the early days, right, and you think about uh, bin Laden and what he was doing, right? It was kind of these three guys who formed this group and then ultimately had phenomenal success. One of the things I started to look at as I thought about this, this is a, a theory that comes from political science, is this um, from Mansur Olson, is, is kind of looking at dictators and looking at um, roving bandits. So are these terrorist groups roving bandits or stationary bandits? A stationary bandit is a bandit who wants to dominate a geography, use a lot of force, and plunder, right? Exploit resources from the area. So they, got, they have to get a lot of loyalty. It's not a zero cost or necessarily even a low cost um, thing to do. And then there's roving bandits, and roving bandits are the uh, kind of gangs, right, that roam around, they plunder, they take all the resources, they expropriate what they need, and then they move on. So I was trying to kind of figure out what, from what I know as a non-classified academic looking at this in the early days, what can I tell about their movements? And if you look at it, you see obviously they started in Saudi Arabia, but then based on international and U.S. pressure, um, they moved to the Sudan, and then they moved again, where they basically kind of uh, gained a lot of traction, gained a lot of followers, gained a lot of money, right? So all these things um, show me, at least indicate, that this is, I think Al-Qaeda was the kind of organization that wanted to be a stationary bandit, because in some ways this is easier. But you have to dominate. You actually have to act as a proto-state to do this. But because of lots of pressure for them to leave, they ended up having to move around, and this can be costly for a terrorist organization. You're always on the run, right? So again, that can also inform our policy, our thinking about what they're going to do. But where are the places that terrorists thrive? Look at the places on the, on the map, right? They're not, Al-Qaeda doesn't pick up and move to New York City. 
And the reason they don't do that is because it's a hard place to be a terrorist. Why? Because there's a lot of economic freedom. So this is what I kind of wanted, you know, I started with a microeconomic analysis of this. I want to extend that to thinking about what are the conditions in societies that make it expensive to be a terrorist? Because that's how economists think about things. We want to raise the costs of engaging in terrorism. There's a variety of ways we can do that. A lot of our policy is focused on that supply curve, right? Defeat, intercept, interrupt, stop the resource flows. That's important and necessary. But what my understanding of economic freedom tells me is that we also have to play the demand side of this. And I think we are doing that to some extent. But the title of my talk suggests I think that we could do more. Thinking about the United States role in particular, but other uh, countries, that can support this effort to support more economic freedom. And you can see here, there's lots of data you can get on terrorism. Um, this is an increasing problem. Modern Islamic terrorism is an increasing problem. And so this is a policy problem. It's an economic problem. It's a, it's a problem of absent or fragile civil societies. And really, you know, I think one of the hard parts is when you think about this, you know, you want, an economist wants to tell a policymaker, here's the five things you should do. And you hope that they listen to you, right? That might be easy with like minimum wage policy. Do these five things and you'll get these outcomes. This is a lot harder when we're talking about how to defeat ISIS, right? And how to stop the emergence of new terrorist groups in the future, which I think is a real problem we have to wrestle with. So this is the long game, but I think it's an important part of the game we need to play. And so I want to talk a little bit about economic freedom because, again, I think in policy circles this is underappreciated and under-discussed as a, as a tool that we can use to not just fight back terrorism in the short run, right, but to cultivate institutions in societies that are peaceful, that have growing incomes, Right, where people of different tribes and different sects and different religions can cooperate. That might sound crazy, especially when you look at a country like Afghanistan, which has a history that's nothing like that. It's not about cooperation. It's not about income growth. It's rule by thugs, literally. Right? So it's hard to imagine that being transformed. But if you look at the past 250 years of human history, it can be transformed. It has been transformed in other places. So this is the optimistic part of the talk. Not to say that this is easy. It's actually very hard, but that it's possible. And I think the economics allow us to see that perspective. So a little bit about economic freedom. I want to kind of talk about what it is. This is kind of Milton Friedman. You've heard of him. Uh, you know, kind of a big deal, I guess. He was at the University of Chicago, and he said in the 70s, look, we talk about prosperity as economists all the time, but what do we mean? It's kind of like, I know it when I see it, but what, how do I measure it? So he worked with the Fraser Institute, a Canadian-based free market think tank, to say, let's measure it. So that's what we do now. We have the Economic Freedom of the World Report that comes out, just came out in September. Heritage Foundation has one now. There's many different organizations that do this, which is great, because that means the competition the data's in the data means the data is getting better. So this means a voluntary society where people are free to enter and exit markets. People are not coerced to buy or sell or refrain from buying and selling. So there's lots of entrepreneurship in this type of society, right? It's characterized by that. And we measure it by looking at these five things. Soundness of the currency, so this is about central bank policy. Freedom to trade, 
both domestically and internationally, so we look at free trade policies. Uh, regulatory burden. How hard is it to open a business? How hard is it to get a loan? How hard is it to stay in business? So we look at the regulatory complex or the regulatory regime in any society. The level and protection of property rights. Does the rule of law exist? And size of government. And we score countries, we give them a score between zero and 10. And we do this again every year, year after year. So it's a lot of data, it's a lot of work. Um, and this is a map that shows you economic freedom of the world in a most kind of updated um, index. The blue countries are the most free. Green countries are called mostly free. Orange, mostly unfree. Red, least free. It should not be a surprise to us that the countries that score least free are the places you're most likely to see terrorist-type activity embedded in the society, right? Viewed as kind of, this is a reasonable way to spend my time. Again, that's how economists think about this. Why does someone wake up in the morning and say, this seems like a good idea? I'm going to give maybe my life for this. That's expensive. It's a very expensive proposition, right? So it's, it's great to measure economic freedom. And I think over the 40 years we've been doing this, we've gotten a lot better at it. But I want to also talk about the outcomes of economic freedom, because this is what sells it. Only economists get excited about measuring things, right? I want to talk about that. How, what is it correlated with? And very consistently over time, economic freedom, high levels of economic freedom are correlated with high levels of income per person. You know a way to incentivize or to disincentivize terrorism? help people get wealthier, because you have a lot more to lose, right? And I don't mean just the people in the terrorist organizations, but the people at large in that society, which have very poor options. Economic freedom is positively correlated with economic growth. And economic growth really is just an aggregation of how individuals in that society is doing. Adam Smith also said, no society can be rich and prosperous if a large portion of its numbers are poor and suffering. Mutual human prosperity, that's what human flourishing is about, right? And that's what we want to think about. Um, I think this is really important too, civil liberties and political rights. So what we see in the data by looking at this for a long period of time is that societies that score well on high levels of economic freedom also have better civil liberties and more political rights that are protected by their government. So that's an interesting thing to think about again, right? What are we after? And the question is, there's a lot of debate over this, is kind of it's a chicken and an egg thing, right? Do you need democracy to get good um, economic growth or do you need economic growth to get democracy? And I think that they work very intimately with one another. Uh, but that's one of the things I, I have my students write about in their papers, um, just kind of picking a country of their choosing and thinking about these types of things and, and really going and looking at the data. So I think the bottom line is economic freedom gets us that social cooperation we want so much, right? When, when Tocqueville witnessed in his travels across America, there's one of my favorite kind of quotes from Democracy in America. He said, when the French have a problem, they go to the government. When the Americans have a problem, they start an organization. And he called this the art of association. So it's these intermediary institutions, and they actually serve as a productive buffer against the growth and of the size and the scope of the state. So this civil society is a protection against authoritarianism. And that's very important for our consideration of not just terrorist behavior, but the behavior of dictators, right? Look at what's going on in China right now. Civil society is actually one of the phrases that you're not allowed to speak. 
So it's, it's made illegal because it's so dangerous to authoritarians, right? So economic freedom actually engenders this type of cooperation. And so I want to make sure I save time for questions, but I think this is all, you know, these are big ideas. These are macroeconomic indicators. I think they're based on microeconomic truths. And all, you know, I, all of this is to say this should, in my opinion, be part of how we think about our strategy to fight terrorism. Because it's not just about, you know, getting the bad guys and, and beating them down. It's about getting the future bad guys to not be bad guys. That's about fundamentally reforming the institutions of society. So I want to tell one last story which doesn't actually have that much to do with terrorism, but I, I kind of lump dictator behavior and authoritarian behavior. You guys might know this story, um, but I, I tell it every time I have the opportunity. This is who? Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin visited the United States. I think this picture was taken in 1989. You can Google it. Uh, he went to the Johnson Space Center. Uh, George Bush was the president. He was on a diplomatic visit. This is what you do. You go to the Space Center and he's like, boring. I want to go to a grocery store. Smart guy. So he has this visit to this Randall's grocery store, still an active chain of grocery stores. And this is a picture of him with his wife perusing the aisles. And I think it's very funny because this is an antiquated looking grocery store to us today, right? But he's like, overwhelmed by this grocery store. He actually writes about this experience in his autobiography and says it's what turned him into a reformer. Amazing. He's going up down the aisles. They're getting him samples, right? He has a couple of comments that really are, are stunning, I think. One, he says, if the Russian people knew of this, surely they'd revolt. Because 80 years of central planning was a man-made tragedy that was unnecessary unnecessary. He didn't even know. He's like one of the richest guys. He has minions at his disposal. He has political power. And he's never experienced a grocery store like this, full of stuff waiting for people. The stuff waits for people in a free market society. The people wait for stuff in other types of societies. So this really changes him. And my favorite part of the story, he's standing in the popsicle aisle. This is so great, right? Because popsicles are completely unnecessary. It's just gratuitous consumption. My kids love them, right? This is the 80s, so he's fascinated by Jell-O pudding pops. You might remember Jell-O pudding pops. My mom always had those in the house. And he can't get them in the Soviet Union, so he has them shipped over. And I think, if this is the strategy to turn people on to capitalism, let's send everybody Jell-O pudding pops. That's what we should do. So the, the idea here is you have to experience what's possible in the embrace of these ideas. And that's really hard if you've lived in a country like Afghanistan. To experience, to mentally imagine that you can live in a country where you can go to the grocery store on the day you choose, and there's extras like popsicles for you. Not just stuff you need to survive, but the good stuff. And so this, to me, needs to be front and center of our conversations, not just about our political strategies and our military strategies, but about our comprehensive approach. And I think the world looks to us to be leaders in that regard. And so I think we need to bring more economic freedom to the discussion. I'm going to stop there, see if you have questions, comments. <laughs> Question. Oh, we're getting you a mic. Yeah, so going along the rationale that you just proposed, for decades, um, the Arab countries, other countries have been sending their kids to our universities, colleges, to experience just that. Has that been effective or why, what is the gap there? Why is that not enough? 
Uh, well, I guess one reason it's not enough is just there's not enough room in universities to get enough people to experience it. I think the other problem, too, is it's very clear, both in the data, but just from a theoretical standpoint, that um, authoritarian-type regimes under which both terrorists thrive but authoritarian leaders who, you know, kind of are bad for everything, both their societies and the world, uh, really understand that this is a problem for them, that it's a challenge to their leadership. So I think that's part of the problem, too, is just trying to shut down that information flow, shut down what people have access to. So uh, one of the things that we look at is not just economic freedom, but political freedom. And so um, that's done by another organization, and they rank countries based on their kind of, they're looking at, you know, free and fair elections. Do you get turnover after different election outcomes? They look at internet freedom. And one of the things that we see is that low levels of economic freedom are also tied to low levels of political freedom. So I guess to answer your question explicitly, I think there are, there's more we can do to kind of spread the message of the power of economic freedom. Um, but I think authoritarian regimes are very reluctant to do that. So, you know, students attending universities, it's an amazing thing to do to travel to a different place. I think it opens your eyes to how other people live, especially how ordinary people live. Uh, that's a very powerful thing, and I think to the extent that we can show those pictures in this way, some elements of social media, I think, can very much be our friend. Another kind of thing that's interesting, if you look at the view of American culture around other worlds as it's, as it's translated in movies, like, a lot of people love American movies, right, because you have, like, the good guys, like, if you look at the Avengers or something, the good guys always beat the bad guys, but there's a valiant fight. Um, and so I think that there's cultural elements, not that are all good, certainly, but, you know, it, I wouldn't say movies are our only hope, but I do think it shows other cultures and societies and people how, you know, what it's like to be an American, some glimpse into that. So I think there's a variety of ways we can do this. Yeah. So the, the people that I knew, I have known, will explore what we have. But the mentality that they have is if you cause me to have an evil pro thought or do the wrong thing, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. You made me do it. it. They don't take responsibility for their own behavior. So yeah. therefore, they blame you, they hate you, mm -hmm. and they think you're evil. So it basically does exactly the opposite of what we intend it to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. it does. And I, you know, I think that there's an ethos that has to undergird a free market society. What is that ethos? What is that ethic? And I really think it rests on this conception that's so important of human dignity, right? Equality before the law. That really transforms your view of the state, doesn't it? Um, so, you know, if you have, if you come to the table with dignity and rights, then the job of the state is very different. It's to protect what you already had, not to give it and take it away. So I, I'm saying that because I think this notion of uh, egalitarianism that comes out of this concept of human dignity is really important for transforming those attitudes. But look, even in our own American culture, I think we're seeing growing um, resistance to some of those ideas. There's obviously very profound culture wars that are going on now that I don't probably have to explain, but I, mean, I do think there's an incentive to kind of say, this is not my fault. Um, you know, there's a hatred of markets. There's even maybe kind of a questioning of democracy. I think those are very dangerous things. 
Uh, so, you know, my only response is, I'm a teacher. <laughs> I'm going to teach this till I drop dead because I think t teaching economics and teaching the connection of free market societies to this ethos of human dignity and respect for other people is, again, I, I realize I'm involved in the long game here, but I think it's really important, and I think we just have to keep hammering that. Other questions? Oh, there's one back here. Oh, sorry, is there one up here? My name is Mary Fisher. Uh, I was a home economist and I taught home economics. And in 1964, after I'd been teaching two years, I went to, uh, for the summer, to Europe for um, four months. Toured all of Europe. And when I came home, I not only kissed the refrigerator, I kissed the oven, and I kissed my surface unit. <laughs> what I'm trying to share with you is the difference was dramatic. And I think we get to the point where in some of these areas, they just don't have an understanding of what it takes to build that. Yeah. And I think that's where we've made the mistake. We became the father of a lot of these countries. And instead of teaching them how to fish, we really gave them the fish. So I think it's a process we need to take a look at how we're doing this. And maybe we can do it more effectively. I'm 82. I was born the day Germany marched into Poland in 1939. I know the effects of communism, and I know about Germany, and I've been through it, watching it. Mm. I've been to communist countries. I know what they have. It's very true about your aspect of what is not in the stores, and I can understand why Boris had that feeling that he was overwhelmed what was there, and I can appreciate the trouble is our young people don't understand that. I agree with that. So I, I never understood the importance of this moment that I had when I was in high school until much later. But when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go on this five-country tour with other high school students who were from different regional high schools, so I didn't know any of them, through an organization called People to People. And we got a, just a flyer in the mail, and I said, Mom and Dad, I want to do this. I was a sophomore. I was 15. And um, my parents said, oh, we will help you do this, but it's either this or a car, because they were going to help me buy a car. And you know when you're 16, the car is the thing. And I'm so glad I chose the trip. I'm so glad I chose the trip, because I got to go to Russia. And I didn't come home and kiss my refrigerator, because I was kind of a dumb 15-year-old at the time, maybe. But I, I now realize that that changed even what I would do for a living, which is to see a country as this young person where people didn't have anything, they were oppressed, we had somebody follow us around telling us where we could go and what we could see. It was shocking and jarring. I think your other point, so I think this is really, if we can teach by example, and I don't just mean in our classrooms, I think we need to be good communicators of this. I think we get caught in lots of intellectual or Twitter, non-intellectual Twitter fights, right? Um, and I don't think that changes people's minds. So I think young people, what they're being lured by right now is this idea that capitalism has failed, i.e. economic freedom has failed, and so we need a strong state to manage the economy, 
They're not, no, none of that kind of, none of the people advocating for that position are saying let's go back to Lenin because that's ridiculous. But they are saying let's, let's engage in this democratic socialism idea. And I think um, we have to stop that. It, it's, it doesn't work. There's actually no such thing as democratic socialism. Socialism cannot be democratic. For all the reasons we, I just talked, it just, it's, it's an economic impossibility. So I think we use that to teach, to teach people that this is a very dangerous proposition that leads to um, a slippery slope of power over people. Um, and I also think, uh, one more thing I'll say, when I talk about economic freedom, I, I really reiterate this idea that there's no destiny. So look at Venezuela. I'm, I'm just kind of stunned that more people aren't moved by this, at least young people. Because when I was growing up, it was the existential threat of the Soviet Union, and maybe that was the difference, that it was an existential threat, whereas Venezuela doesn't present itself that way. So I just can't imagine, though, how can you look at Venezuela, which is a place 30 years ago you would have said, let's, let's put that on our vacation list. It's an amazing place, great food, beautiful culture, beautiful place to go. Now, what is it? It's at the bottom, by the way. I pulled up the economic freedom because I thought people might ask me about it. It's, uh, the data just came out, and for the, like the fifth year in a row, it's dead last. The worst country that we measure for economic freedom is Venezuela. And really, the, North Korea might be worse, but we can't even trust their data, so they're not even on here. But I mean, this is a tragedy. And so I think for our young people, we need to say, look, America has been the leader of economic freedom in the world for a long time, but that doesn't guarantee we're always going to have economic freedom. We can pursue policies that make us a Venezuela. That should scare people. Rightly, not to be scary, but it's a reality. So I think we need to understand that these are moving um, equilibrium, and we need to fight for the institutions of free markets and democracy, et cetera, that they're not just a given. Thank you for your comments. We have literally one very short question left. Sorry. Frank, you choose. You've had your hand up right here. Go ahead. So I think my takeaway is that Disney Corporation is much more effective than the State Department. Right? <laughs> Maybe. Long term. I, I think uh, the thing that really struck me as I heard your speak, because I've been to many of the parts of the world and... Um, I do think that there's an element that you need to maybe add to it or think more about it, which is that uh, the world has changed. We're no longer in an information-starved kind of uh, world. People know what America's like and know what is available, and economic uh, kind of situation for people are much better. If you travel to the world, I mean, they're not going to be impressed by that. You could go to many countries and you'll have that. I do think that we are not actually fighting the fight. I mean, we are not really promoting American values. We're not promoting the idea about the connection between civil society, the idea about the value of the individual, the value of freedom, which is what is the source of our economic strength. And not only it's eroding in this country, but we are simply not preaching. And, um, you know, I don't know if you think that that is something that some part of our government or a non-government organization should promote more, more like, you know, the Voice of America or something mm -hmm. like that that was before. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Are we done? Or can I respond? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think um, this is where social media is actually very powerful um, in some ways. 
Uh, I rem this is a short story, but I remember traveling last year in Grand Rapids and I had to take an Uber and my Uber driver was from Cuba and he talked about how Cubans use Facebook. And he said, basically, you, you, there's parks where there's Wi-Fi and you use Facebook to kind of get a glimpse into the world and to speak to your family, right? So it's like very different than how most of us use Facebook, which is this is what I ate for dinner last night or something like that, right? Which is great, but it's very different. So I think you're right, and I think that there's more that we can do. To me, this is in some sense a marketing problem. Uh, we have the goods. The goods are good. We just need to demonstrate that, and, and some of that, I think, is not just storytelling, although I do, of course, think that's powerful, but also showing. So this element of civil society, that's like a very abstract thing that's hard to talk about. We need, you know, we need to figure out how we can share that. But I, to me, it's incredibly relevant. And part of our strategy needs to include that. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>